This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On December 8, 2000, 23-year-old Andrew Schreiber was abducted at gunpoint. Andrew was an assistant baseball coach at Newman University and was an avid baseball lover, so it was his dream job. He had been shopping at a convenience store in Wichita, Kansas when he was startled by a man pointing a gun at him. Andrew did as he was told, moving from the driver's seat to the passenger seat of his 1998 Ford Expedition. The gunman pulled the SUV into an alley and another armed man got into the vehicle. Andrew was a young, fit athlete who kept on the right side of the law. This kind of danger was completely foreign to him and he was terrified, but managed to keep his cool. He followed the orders his abductors gave him as they drove from ATM to ATM and withdrew the maximum sum of cash from each. Andrew would later say, quote, I was just hoping that if I did what they said, they'd let me live. The men drove the SUV around a bit before driving to a field nearby. When they arrived at the location, Andrew's anxiety reached its peak, but instead of turning the gun on him, the two men told him to lie on the floor of the back seat. They told him that they would leave the keys in the road and then they asked him if he had a spare tire. When he said yes, they shot at one of the tires of his car and told him to wait 20 minutes before moving. Then they stole his watch and fled the scene. As Andrew made his way back into town to report the crime, he had no way of knowing that what he'd experienced wasn't a one-off incident. In fact, it was the beginning of a crime spree that would terrify the city of Wichita. This is Monsters. Once the assailants were gone, Andrew went out to the road and found his keys. Then he limped his vehicle home on the flat tire where he called 911. It seemed he didn't have the ability to change the tire if he had a spare, but it's not explained anywhere. Andrew had been hit on the head multiple times, but he was lucky to be alive. Linda Ann Walenta, who went by Ann, was a 55-year-old librarian and cellist who worked for the Wichita Symphony Orchestra. On December 11, 2000, Anne finished up a late rehearsal with the orchestra and returned home at around 9.30 p.m. She had just finished parking her car in the usual place, on the street directly outside the house she shared with her husband, when a man walked up to her telling her that he needed some help. As Anne rolled the window down, the man pulled out a gun and aimed it at her head. Anne's first instinct was to turn the car back on and attempt to drive away, but it was still running. 
As she turned the key, the man told her not to move, but she put the car in reverse anyway. That's when the man opened fire. The bullet pierced the window on the driver's side, severely wounding her. Unable to continue driving, Anne repeatedly hit the car's horn, causing the neighbors to call the police. Unfortunately, by the time officers arrived, Anne had fallen unconscious and there was no sign of her attacker. The man had fired three bullets and one of them severed Anne's spinal cord, instantly paralyzing her from the waist down. While Anne was fighting for her life in the hospital, drifting in and out of consciousness, her assailant and his accomplice struck again. Late in the evening of December 14th, two armed men broke into a house on East Birchwood Drive. The house's usual occupants were three men in their 20s, 26-year-old Jason Beffert, 27-year-old Brad Haka, and 29-year-old Aaron Sander. That night, they had two visitors at the house with them, 25-year-old Heather Muller, who was Aaron Sander's ex-girlfriend, and the other 25-year-old woman known only as Holly G. Holly had also brought her beloved pet schnauzer, Nikki, with her. Holly was a teacher at Rose Hill Elementary and had been dating Jason for a while. He was also a teacher and the pair were completely smitten. Jason had actually been trying to work up the courage to propose to her, even buying a ring and a book full of proposal tips, but he still hadn't found the right moment to pop the question. Holly arrived at the triplex before Jason, so she used the time to grade some papers as she waited for Jason to get home from basketball practice. He was the science teacher and coach for the junior varsity basketball team at Augusta High School. That night, the five friends spent some time catching up over dinner, then watched television for a few hours before they went to sleep. Holly and Jason were in bed together when the room was suddenly illuminated by the porch light. Jason was annoyed, saying to Holly, quote, Don't tell me I have to get up and turn off the light again. Holly tried to check the clock next to the bed to see what the time was. She couldn't see the whole screen because Jason's head was blocking her view, but she could tell that it was at least 11 p.m. Suddenly, the bedroom door flung open and a man holding a gun appeared in the doorway. He strode into the room and pulled back the sheets that were covering Holly and Jason. A second man walked in a few seconds later, dragging Aaron with him and pushed him down onto the bed. Holly's dog, Nikki, who had been woken up by the intruders, began to growl. One of the intruders told Holly and Jason, quote, Grab your dog or we'll shoot her. The other man asked if there were any other people in the house, and once they were given directions to the rooms where Brad and Heather were sleeping, one assailant went downstairs to retrieve them. Because the bedroom was mostly dark, Holly found it hard to tell the two intruders apart. She could see that both of them were black, and the one who had entered the room first was slightly taller and more muscular than the second intruder. One by one, Brad and Heather were brought into the room. With all of the house's occupants now confined in one room, the intruders ordered them to hand over all of their cash, but none of the five victims had any cash on them, so they handed their debit cards over instead. While the intruders were burgling the house, one of them called out that they had found a diamond ring hidden inside a box of popcorn. That's how Holly found out that her boyfriend was planning on proposing to her. Then the intruders ordered them to take off all of their clothes, tied them up, and forcibly pushed all five people into a small closet in the bedroom. Over the next few hours, they would remove Holly and Heather from the closet to sexually assault them and, on several occasions, Brad, Jason, and Aaron were forced to perform sexual acts with the women at gunpoint. They were told that if they weren't able to perform, they would be shot. 
One by one, the victims were driven to nearby ATMs where they were forced to withdraw all the money they could. When the crime was complete, the Carr brothers were willing to destroy five lives for about $1,850. After that process had been completed for all five victims, the intruders forced them into Aaron's car. Jonathan drove the car while Reginald drove Jason's truck to the outskirts of the city, stopping at the Stryker Soccer Complex. At the soccer field, the victims were forced out of the car in order to kneel down next to each other in a line. All five victims were executed. They were shot once at point-blank range in the back of the head. As the attackers fled the scene, they carried out one last act of violence, deliberately driving the truck over the dead bodies of their victims. Heather, Brad, Jason, and Aaron were either dead or dying, but miraculously, Holly was still alive. She had been wearing a plastic barrette in her hair and the bullet had glanced off the smooth plastic, grazing the side of her head and fracturing her skull instead of entering her brain. In the dark, her attackers hadn't noticed that Holly was simply stunned instead of dying. Holly had been awake when she'd heard the intruders talking about what to do next, and she'd been awake when they had slowly, deliberately driven their truck over her body. Once she was sure that the killers were gone, Holly desperately tried to save Jason's life by bandaging his head wound. At that point, Holly was freezing cold. She was completely naked and not wearing any shoes, and the ground was covered in snow. Despite the weather, the bullet wound to her head, and the fact that she'd recently been run over, when she saw a building in the distance, she managed to walk over a mile to get to the front door. On her way, every time she saw headlights, she dove to the ground and covered herself with snow because she was afraid the monsters that had terrorized her were coming back. When the homeowner saw a bleeding, naked woman on their doorstep, they let her inside the house and called 911. Holly was concerned that she was going to die from her injuries, so she rushed through the description of the crime, sharing as much information as she could with the two strangers who had invited her into their home. Police and ambulances rushed to the scene, but it was too late to save any of Holly's friends. They were also too late to save Holly's schnauzer, Nikki. After shooting the five friends, the two killers had gone back to the house and beaten Nikki to death with a golf club. It turned out that the brothers returned to the house and, along with murdering a dog, stole anything else of value. They then returned to the vehicle they had driven to the area in, a borrowed tan Toyota, and returned to their homes. The horrifying nature of the crime shocked the community and the events that had taken place that night soon became known as the Wichita Massacre. Shortly after the murders, the police arrested a man matching the description of one of the killers. His name was Reginald Carr. At the time he was apprehended, Reginald was carrying Heather Muller's watch and Jason Befford's gas card. A brief search of his apartment revealed a collection of other items that belonged to the victims, but there was no sign of whoever his accomplice in the crimes had been. When the news that one man had been arrested in connection to the crime broke, a tip was quickly called in to the police. Reginald's brother, Jonathan Carr, was staying at the apartment of one of his friends and the friend was watching the news when she saw a report about Reginald's arrest. Immediately, she knew who the accomplice was. Reginald had committed the crimes with his own brother. The friend and her mother called the police, telling them that they believed they knew who the killer was. Jonathan was quickly arrested and just like his brother, he was in possession of multiple items that belonged to the victims. One of them was a diamond engagement ring, the one that Jason had planned to use to propose to Holly. 
Based on the evidence, the police theorized that the Carr brothers' motive had truly been financial. Once they decided they were going to rob people, they saw no reason why they shouldn't sexually assault, terrorize, and murder their victims. Ann Walenta, who was still in critical condition, positively identified Reginald Carr as one of her assailants. Shortly afterwards, she passed away from her injuries, increasing the Carr brothers' death toll by one more victim. But despite being shot in the head, one of the victims of the Wichita Massacre survived to testify at the Carr brothers' trial, Holly G. As the date of the trial came closer, media outlets speculated that the crime may have been racially motivated because all of the victims were white and Reginald and Jonathan were black. From the moment that Reginald and Jonathan were arrested, race had become a key factor in the coverage of the case, even though there was no concrete evidence to suggest that race had been a factor in the killings. During jury selection, the prospective jurors were questioned on their views about race as well as what they already knew about the spree of crimes that Reginald and Jonathan had carried out. One potential juror was excused because he had a strong moral opposition to the death penalty. Three more were excused because they personally knew at least one of Reginald and Jonathan's victims. Finally, a jury was selected, five women and seven men. The twelve jurors sat through an emotional and gruesome collection of testimonies. Dr. Scott Porter, a trauma surgeon, used a mannequin to demonstrate the fatal gunshot wounds that had led to Ann Walenta's death. His description was so detailed and graphic that one of the jurors fainted and had to be examined at the hospital. Andrew Schreiber, the Carr brothers' first victim, told the story of how he was abducted and robbed, and then he and his car were dumped in a field. He was able to positively identify Reginald as being one of the perpetrators, but was unable to say whether or not Jonathan had been the second assailant. In the early days of the trial, Holly was called to the stand. She painstakingly described the fear and pain that the Carr brothers had put her and her friends through, telling the court that she and Heather had been repeatedly raped and that the brothers had forced their male friends to engage in sexual activity with her and Heather at gunpoint. At one point, one of the brothers had told one of the men that he would be shot if he couldn't perform. Mary Dudley, the coroner for Sedgwick County, described the fatal wounds that had been inflicted on the victims. They hadn't just been shot at point-blank range. Heather and Aaron had actually been shot with the muzzle of the gun pressed to the back of their heads. Holly, Brad, and Jason had all been shot by someone standing slightly farther away. Jonathan Carr's attorney asked Mary if that could mean that only one of the brothers had shot the victims, but Mary replied that it was impossible to tell. Forensic experts testified about Holly's survival, proving that the small hair clip she had been wearing was likely the only reason that she had been able to survive her head wound. Amongst the other charges against them, Reginald and Jonathan were also facing a count of animal cruelty for their killing of Holly's dog. A crime scene investigator testified that Nikki had been beaten to death with a golf club before being stabbed repeatedly with an ice pick. To prove that the Carr brothers had robbed the house on East Birchwood Drive, the prosecution brought a large collection of items into the courtroom. All of them had belonged to the victims, and all of them had since been found in Reginald's apartment. The items ranged from jackets and shoes, to remote controls, a tool set, and a big screen TV. One by one, family members and friends testified that those items belonged to the victims. A forensic investigator told the court that Jonathan had lost one of his shoes while attempting to run from the police. The print of that shoe exactly matched a footprint that had been lifted from the garage floor at East Birchwood Drive. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The investigators had also been able to link Ann Walenta and Andrew Schreiber's crimes after finding that bullets from the same gun had been used to fatally wound Ann and shoot the tires of Andrew's car. Shell casings from that same gun had also been found in the house on East Birchwood Drive. However, the gun had been dumped on the side of the road only a couple of blocks away from the soccer field where the victims were killed. Without a DNA link, that meant that, even though the gun had been used in all three crimes, it was impossible to prove that the weapon had belonged to either of the Carr brothers. Fortunately, there was also other forensic evidence that placed the Carr brothers at the crime scene. Jonathan's semen had been found on the carpet at East Birchwood Drive, and it was also a match to swabs taken from Holly after she survived her ordeal. While Reginald's semen wasn't found in the house, spots of Heather Muller's blood had been left on his clothing. After the assault, Holly had contracted a sexually transmitted disease, which she had likely caught from Reginald, whose ex-girlfriend reported that she had the same condition. Even the people close to the Carr brothers didn't believe they were innocent. Reginald's girlfriend, Stephanie Donnelly, took the stand saying that she had become suspicious when Reginald suddenly had a lot of cash in December, even though he didn't have a job. When she asked him how he was getting this money, Reginald told her that he had been entering his pet pit bull into illegal dogfights and the cash came from the winnings. During that same month, Reginald had moved several items into Stephanie's house, which were later identified as belonging to his victims. Stephanie had also testified that, on December 14th, she had let Reginald and his brother borrow her car at around 5.30pm. They returned the vehicle to her 12 hours later, after the Wichita massacre had taken place. Tronda Adams, Reginald's friend whose mother had tipped off the police, testified that he had come to her house on the evening of December 11th and handed her a handgun. She had no idea that it was the gun that he had used to rob and fatally shoot Ann Walenta only an hour before. Tronda held on to the gun for several days until December 14th when Reginald came to pick it up. Tronda's mother told the story of how she'd begun to suspect that Jonathan was the accomplice after seeing the news report about Reginald's arrest. She had rushed across the street with Tronda and one of her nieces and together they placed the 911 call that resulted in Jonathan being arrested. In the face of hundreds of exhibits and multiple eyewitness testimonies, the defense faced an uphill battle. The attorneys for both brothers attempted to argue that the other brother had been the perpetrator, while their defendant had some sort of alibi for the date the Wichita massacre took place. Reginald's lawyers attempted to get him to testify in his own defense, claiming that Jonathan had been telling stories about spending time with another man who was shooting people. According to Reginald, that anonymous second perpetrator had been the one to carry out the crimes with Jonathan, and Reginald had just been trying to help his brother by holding on to the victim's stolen property. However, the judge ruled that admitting that testimony was hearsay and couldn't be admitted as evidence. Jonathan's defense was even weaker than his brother's. His attorneys presented an unused train ticket as evidence, telling the jury that Jonathan had planned to take the train out of Wichita on the evening of December 14th. However, he hadn't ended up using the ticket, not because he had been carrying out a quadruple robbery and homicide, no, no, no. It was because he had somehow become lost and had missed his train completely. 
His defense also leaned on the fact that Reginald had been positively identified as the perpetrator more consistently than Jonathan, and Reginald had also been the brother who was in possession of more of the victim's stolen property. Jonathan's attorney said, quote, Reginald Carr was not alone, but the evidence will show who was taking the lead role that night, directing things, taking things. Don't just go back there and check the box guilty on all counts. Please consider his guilt and innocence separate from the damning evidence against his brother, Reginald. During the closing arguments, one prosecutor said to the jury, quote, This is a crime driven by greed and lust, by selfishness, and driven by twisted sexual gratification. Finally, the trial came to a close and the jury began their deliberation. On November 4, 2002, they came back with their verdict. Reginald and Jonathan Carr faced a total of 113 criminal charges and they were convicted of almost all of them, including one count of first-degree murder, four counts of capital murder, and a collection of charges for the robbery, sexual assault, and kidnapping of their victims. Crucially, the men weren't just convicted of sexually assaulting their female victims. They were also convicted of raping the male victims who they had forced to engage in sexual activity. And, for the beating and stabbing of Holly's dog, Nikki, they were found guilty of animal cruelty. Now the jury were left with an even more difficult task, deciding what the appropriate punishment was for the crimes the Carr brothers were guilty of. During the penalty phase of the trial, the residents of Wichita were calling for both brothers to be executed. One local man bought two human-shaped dummies with dark skin, representing Reginald and Jonathan, and then displayed the dummies hanging from a tree in his yard. That display caused a public outcry because it reminded the community of the lynchings of black men that had taken place in the past. After a large number of other residents complained about the dummies, the man agreed to take them down, claiming that he had only been trying to show his distaste for the Carr brothers and that he hadn't been making a racial statement. The Carr brothers' attorney called on witnesses to describe the brothers' upbringing, hoping to paint their clients in a sympathetic light. Like many people who end up carrying out evil acts, both Reginald and Jonathan Carr had a troubled childhood filled with violence and abuse. Reginald and Jonathan's mother, Janice, told the jury that her two sons had grown up in a household that didn't show physical affection or celebrate holidays. She stated that the boys had a traumatic childhood, one of their sisters died when she was three, and their father was often violent to Janice. One day, Janice had had enough. She told the court, quote, I picked up a bat and beat him with it. I told him he wasn't going to hit me again. Shortly afterwards, the couple divorced and Reginald and Jonathan's father vanished from their lives completely, something that's common when an abuser realizes their victims won't take their shit anymore. Janice remarried but faced the same issues with her second husband, who even threatened her with a gun. She would sometimes send the boys to stay with their grandmother instead, but she was also erratic, often having outbursts where she would yell at the boys. Finally, Janice turned towards her sons and spoke to them directly. She said, quote, I don't know what went wrong, but I love you. I'm sorry if I did something wrong. I'm sorry. Reginald and Jonathan's older sister confirmed Janice's story of a chaotic childhood, adding that she had been sexually abused by her father and that several of Janice's boyfriends had sexually abused Reginald and Jonathan. She alleged that the abuse had caused the brothers to act out at school and that Jonathan had tried to end his life when he was 16 years old by drinking a bottle of antifreeze. A forensic pathologist testified that Reginald had been exposed to violence, sex, and drugs from a young age including finding pornographic material that featured his own mother. 
it was revealed that, starting at only six years old, Reginald was sexually abusing children that his mother babysat. At 11 years old, he was being given drugs and alcohol by his older relatives, and by the time he started 8th grade, he had attended a total of 8 different schools. He started dealing drugs at 13, and his own mother was one of his customers. His behavioral problems included fighting with other students and sexually harassing his teachers, and finally, in 9th grade, he dropped out. He had spent time in prison before he even turned 18. Another psychologist described Jonathan as having a childhood that was, quote, hopeless, helpless, homeless, hungry, and hugless. He alleged that that upbringing left Jonathan and Reginald, quote, so void of empathy and attachment that he could do this crime to other young people. However, both psychologists agreed that Reginald and Jonathan were able to tell the difference between right and wrong, but they simply didn't care about doing the right thing. Both Andrew Schreiber and Holly G. chose to make further statements to the jury. Andrew shared that he had been suffering from survivor's guilt since the Wichita Massacre, ever since he found out that most of the victims had not survived their encounter with the Carr brothers. Ever since that day, he had been constantly reminded of the fear and pain of his ordeal. Holly began her statement by saying, quote, I speak on behalf of Brad, Aaron, Heather, Anne, Andy, Jason, and myself. One of my favorite seven-year-olds lost her uncle on the 15th. This year, when her mom asked her what she wanted for Christmas, she replied that if she had wings, and if they were real, that she could fly to heaven and see her uncle Jason and her papa. I wish life were that simple. I wish that I could put on a pair of wings and that I could go see Jason. But we all know that these are wishes, and they are wishes that we have to wish because of two soulless monsters. Holly went on to describe the impact that the trauma and grief had on her life. She said, quote, Every day there is a memory or a scar that reminds me of that night. I wake up in sweats from my nightmares. I pace at night because of noises that I think are somebody breaking into my house. Every morning I carefully blow dry my hair to cover up the spot that can no longer grow hair. I look at my knees and see the scars from the carpet burns that I got from the rape, and in the back of my mind I wonder, will it happen again? Reginald's attorney pleaded with the jury, saying, quote, I ask you to extend mercy to Reginald Carr that he did not extend to those four individuals. Meanwhile, Nora Folston, one of the attorneys for the prosecution, advised the jury that they should avoid recommending a lighter sentence because they felt sympathy for the brothers due to their childhood trauma. She said, quote, There is no excuse for an individual's conduct. You can't blame your family for what went wrong in your life. After seven hours of deliberation, the jury reached their decision. While Jonathan was convicted of seven less counts than his brother, the verdict was the same for both. They were sentenced to death for capital murder. Holly told the court that, although Reginald and Jonathan had taken so much from her, there was one thing they would never be able to take away. She said, quote, I had no choice in what Reginald and Jonathan Carr did that night. I wasn't given the choice to save Brad or Aaron or Heather or Jason. I had the choice to lie there and die or to get up and live. I chose to live, and I will still choose to live. Like any death penalty case, the Carr brothers' sentences have gone through a lengthy appeals process. On July 25, 2014, the Kansas Supreme Court announced it had overturned the death sentences on appeal. The six-justice majority said they did so because the trial judge failed to adequately separate the penalty proceedings for each defendant. 
According to a release from the Kansas Supreme Court Public Information Officer, the court unanimously reversed three of each defendant's four capital convictions because jury instructions on sex crime-based capital murder were, quote, fatally erroneous and three of the multiple homicide capital murder charges duplicated the first. The Kansas Attorney General appealed the High Court's ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. In January of 2016, the United States Supreme Court reinstated the death sentences overturning the Kansas Supreme Court, deciding that neither the jury instructions which were challenged by the Carr's legal counsel nor the combined sentencing proceedings violated the Constitution. The Kansas Supreme Court affirmed the death penalty for the brothers on January 21, 2022. The death of Jonathan and Reginald Carr will never bring back the people they so viciously killed, nor will it remove the pain that Andrew and Holly will experience for the rest of their lives, but at least it gives some sense of justice for what two monsters did because they simply wanted money for nothing. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.